Hello, everyone. We're glad you found us, and welcome to our podcast at AntiqueAuctionForum.com. We hope you find this show entertaining and informative. This is Martin Willis, and we have an interesting guest with us today. He is a contemporary artisan of beautiful knives and samurai swords, and he's quite noted. Um, he was uh, a receiver of many uh, awards, including winning Knives Illustrated Best Art Knife of the Year, Blade Magazine Best Knife of the Year, etc. We have Scott Slobodian on the other line. How you doing, Scott? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you for joining us today. I'm glad to. Now, um, how did you get interested? Now, I, I was reading a little bit about you, and I see that you were a photographer at first. Now, how did you get interested in the art of uh, sword making? Well, uh, when I was, uh, I was assigned one time to do an annual report for Wedgwood, China, hmm. and the plant is in Southern California, and the leader of the plant was a gentleman by the name of Bob Agnes, and uh, he and I became friends, and uh, and slowly but surely I found out that he had a, uh, a knife store called Blades and Stuff, and uh, I went over, and uh, because I liked knives, I made a couple of his Bowie knives and a few other blades, and then one day he said, I'm going to try to invent an American-style Japanese sword that basically uh, appears to be exactly the same. Uh, technically, it's the same. Uh, carbon content's the same. And uh, he started doing that. And uh, hmm. I picked it on up right onto it, bought myself a, uh, a, a fancy grinder and uh, a forge and started making them myself. Wow. Now, uh, from what I understand, Bob was quite a, quite a legend. Yes, he was. Uh, he actually didn't really make knives for himself. He basically made copies of all the other big knives, like Loveless and, and knives like that, that were out there. And uh, with their permission, uh, he made a, a kit with the uh, the blade basically done, um, drilled, heat-tempered, and uh, ready to go. And those mm -hmm. were the knives that I did for a while. I see. Now, when you say a, an American-style Japanese sword, can you explain exactly what you mean by that? Sure. The process of making a blade in Japan, the, the true, you know, uh, antique style of how you made a blade required that you smelt a Black River sand or Black Ocean sand. And the content, they, they didn't have any ore deposits there for, for iron. So they would get their iron from these black sands. Hmm. And that uh, required hauling it up into the mountains where they have the, the wood to be able to start the forge and everything. Uh, and then building a forge and uh, cooking this, this metal or the sand into metal. And you get two types of steel out of it. You get a, a hard steel and a soft steel. 
And the recomposition of these two steels is where the smith comes in. He takes chunks of the soft steel and chunks of the hard steel and forms them into uh, the shape of blades. Then he puts those two together, and the end result is a hard core and a, and a soft outside shell to prevent anything from breaking. Hmm. And what he what they did with this process was they created what's called 10, 1050 carbon steel. Uh, 1050 carbon steel is a uh, a modern number for uh, just carbon and and just iron, and it produces a uh, a steel that has a half a percent carbon. And I can go to the store and I can buy. Uh, one uh, 1050 carbon steel. Uh, it's not expensive, uh, but virtually it's identical to uh, the Japanese steel after it's been, you know, 40, 50 hours of labor into the blade. Wow. Wow. So what we were attempting to do was bypass that that 50 hours of blade work and uh, and try to, especially since it's all done in, in uh, hand forges with uh, um, accolades just using the hammers to, to shape it to form for you. So by doing just be able to go, uh, well, of course, not just to a local store. I, I get mine from Admiral Steel in, in uh, Chicago. And you go and you just order the steel in whatever length and whatever thickness or width you want, and that's what they send you. And, uh, and you can either grind that to shape or you can continue forging to shape, either one of the two. And you get a, a steel that you're starting right out with, with very similar carbon content to the, uh, the originals. I see. It was done in like layers, the blades were? The layers are formed by what you're doing when you're, when you're pounding that steel that comes out of the, uh, of the, the forge that made the steel. It comes out looking pretty crummy. It's, it's, a, uh, it's all flaky and, and blistered and everything else. And what you do is you, as you hammer that down into different thicknesses, it sheds all of the uh, impurities inside the steel, like silica, sand, which is a very most particular thing you're trying to get out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, it. It forces it out of that. And because you're working with a high carbon, it's all right to lower that carbon down a bit with, the, with all the hammering. And that forces all the impurities out. So by the time you go to assemble the, the two blades that you've done, with one with the hard steel and one with the soft steel, you can put them together with a pretty clean blade inside. And then the, 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 uh, the hammering from then on is really just shaping the blade out, drawing it out, shaping it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've seen um, old samurai swords, and they're extremely sharp. And what is the secret to them getting these blades so sharp? Well, they're using, they're, there's a number of things. First, first of all, uh, don't let legends cloud your vision. <laughs> they uh, they will not slit a scarf that's a scarf that's dropped from above. Oh yeah, I think and, I saw that movie. Uh, right, and they yeah. will not cut machine guns in half. Uh, there's a lot of things they will not do. Uh, however, uh, the steel is quite sharp. Uh, it's much much sharper than any uh, uh, any of the commercial knives you ever buy. 
and uh, it's resharpenable back down to that hardness again with no problem. You'll, you'll quite often go to a, a museum and see a, a, a sword that's 500 years old and it's an absolutely glossy, perfect state. Hmm. And you say, wow, look, they were able to keep that clean for that long a period of time. Well, that blade could have been repolished 15, 18, 20 times. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. every time you go out and fight in a war, the blade gets chipped, it gets rusty, uh, it gets stained by the acidity of blood. Uh, all these things will happen to it, and they'll go home and clean it up as best as they can. But if it needs to get a chip taken out of it, they send it back to the polisher, who mm -hmm. will polish that chip out. Hmm. And as he does it, of course, the, the size of the blade, you know, get a little smaller, a little smaller, a little smaller. I see. Now, I saw a Japanese block print one time that had a gruesome scene on it, and it was explained to me by an expert that it was a, a samurai sword maker testing his blade, and it was actually on slaves. It was pretty gruesome. Have you ever seen anything like that? Uh, well, of course, that's not done anymore. And as a matter of fact, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> it was pretty much over by the 1600s when mm -hmm. the uh, uh, East, East Japan and West Japan uh, united and be became modern Japan and uh, under the Tokugawas. Uh, what that was was, um, first of all, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of swords made every year. Mm -hmm. And the majority of them are in the bottom of Yokohama Harbor where they were thrown after the war. Wow. Uh, but uh, those swords were never tested that way. Uh, it was only a gentleman who would come in who would be a shogun or uh, a daimyo or, or some high-ranking Japanese person who wanted a, an expert sword. He was out there buying the, the, uh, you know, the finest firearm you could buy, uh, and, and that would be this particular sword. So it would, it would have extra work put into it by the smith. Uh, maybe it wouldn't be made by one of his assistants. It would be made by him and signed by him specially. These are the heirloom swords that we see in, in fine books, etc. And uh, they, they had the opportunity to go to the judicial system of the state uh, and buy a prisoner that was to be executed. And when they purchased him, they would also uh, hire the, the, uh, uh, the assistance of a really burly, heavy-duty samurai. And he would go and with his, with your sword, uh, unmounted, they would just wrap the handle up with, with, uh, silk, uh, unmounted, and you would pay for a cut. It was just a fancy thing that you could have done on a blade. And when they're through, they stamp a, a gold chrysanthemum onto the tang of the blade, right under your signature. And that's to insinuate that the blade is better than, uh, it's shogun quality. It's better than all the other swords. In reality, mm -hmm. most of the other swords could do the same thing. I see. All right, there seems to be a um, difference between the uh, classical, traditional Japanese sword and blade finish and the high-polished American counterpart that a lot of American collectors like. Um, do you have a personal preference on the two? Well, if I were to have a fine Japanese sword laying out in front of me and a fine American sword laying out in front of me, I would, I would choose the Japanese every day. 
Uh, however, uh, it costs uh, uh, at least $2,000 to polish by stones, the hand stones, wow. uh, in the Japanese technique, at least $2,000. Mm. So you can start out with a sword that's $2,000 less in price. And wow. the other thing is, if you want to go and use that American sword for anything like uh, cutting through tatami mats, which is an exercise called tamahagani, uh, it will scar up a, a polished Japanese blade, a fine polished Japanese blade. Mm -hmm. It will smear the finish and in some cases actually break it or, or, or uh, make it a, 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 an ugly looking finish. Nobody wants to do that to something that costs them $2,000 a time to go and be repolished. So a lot of the guys will take a, uh, like one of my swords, and they will use it uh, day in and day out, and they'll go and refinish it uh, with sandpaper like I do under, under water, very fine sandpaper, oh, yes. mm -hmm. and will bring it up to the old polish very rapidly. Mm -hmm. without them costing virtually anything. Now, a guy can do it himself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what you're doing is you're, you're again, you're, if, if you have a, a polished Japanese blade, you can see all the layeration into the steel. If you have a, a, an American blade, you can't see that layeration. You can see a temper line very clearly, but you can't see a, a lamination because there is none. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's one solid bar of steel mixed together, and but on the Japanese one, it's it's anywhere from a thousand layers, eight thousand layers. Wow! Wow! So uh, then you can actually see into um, the glamour of what the what was done by the Smith into the sword to make that an art affectation. I see. I see. You know, um, obviously, there's no comparison with what you make. And what the swords you see peddled, like on eBay and stuff like that, does that in any way hurt what you do as far as getting out a beautiful product? Actually, no. Mm -hmm. uh, when you can go and buy every, every sword that I ever make, I've made 715 of them, I think, in the last 18 or 20 years. Wow. Uh, every single one of those is different from the one before. Uh, wow. Because I rely on a number of factors that are, um, you know, endemic to a Japanese blade. For example, curvature. You don't go into a Japanese bladesmith and say, I want a, a three-inch curvature on the blade from the front to the back. Uh, because every time he mixes up a new batch of steel, forges it out, and he changes the not only the, the geometry of the first part where it's just a still straight blade, but he also changes how many layers he's developed into it. He may need to go another another thousand layers to clean out some extra silica that's in it. So now he's changed the geometry of that blade a lot. So when you have the composition of it. So when he goes to heat treat, all the heat treating is controlled well, it's controlled by the way you put the clay on the blade, but it's also primarily controlled by the layerations of the steel of the carbon that's left in it. 
So you don't get the same curvature every time you go to put a blade together. Mm -hmm. It's just, uh, so when I do it, I have no two, two of my blades could go into the same sheath. Wow. Because they are that different from uh, the, the curvature. It's a little hotter, it comes out a little bit more curved. Now, we do some tricks with this stuff. We'll, we'll place the clay in a different spot, and we'll make it thicker in certain spots, and that will lessen the curvature or increase the curvature. And this is all during the quench process. But uh, that will define the curve a little bit more, but you can't be exacting with it. Now, the ones that are made in China or in Japan that are the, the cheap but nice-looking swords that there are now, they're all duplicates of each other. And they get made by milling machines, and they're all quenched the same day out of the same stock of steel. And uh, so they can order, uh, I was talking to Paul Chen recently, you, you can get, uh, you have to order like five or six sheaths at a time. And then you sit there and, and your assistant like checks to see which one fits in the sheath best. Mm -hmm. And I actually just make the sheath exactly to fit the, the blade that I've made. Sure. Now that must be difficult, the sheath making, to make it, to make it work. If you're a good work, woodworker and uh, if you're moderately exacting and you use the proper wood, it's not really difficult. It may be for a long sword, it probably takes me two, two and a half hours to carve the inside. Mm -hmm. Doing the outside, I do in a, uh, a modern grinder and sander. But uh, the, for on the inside, I do it with chisels and carbide tools and files and uh, a whole bunch of, of instruments to, to move the wood around. And I use a uh, wood, I use alder, uh, and alder is, is a, uh, uh, it's from the Magnolia family, and they do all their short, uh, uh, shia out of uh, uh, wood called ho honoko, uh, shortened out to ho. And that wood is also an alder-style wood. So both woods are virtually the same color, and they work the same way and feel the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the Japanese will go out and go through a woods, and they will uh, bend, brand, or bend uh, 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 saplings over a little bit, so they get a, a pre-curvature as the sapling grows. Wow. Uh, they'll get a curvature to it. I, I don't know. I don't do that. I use rare woods, and I try to go with whatever I have in the rare woods. Wow, wow. So you, you were basically saying just a few minutes ago that every single piece you make is a little bit different? Uh, virtually, they're a lot different. Uh -huh. uh, I even, in, in engraving, my wife does all the engraving. And, really? Uh, even if you order a dragon on, it'll be a different dragon than she's done before. Wow. So we try to do that. that that's the best way to keep a collection of somebody's knives and swords uh, up at a value that is representational of the work you're doing. Sure. If, if it's just everyone's the same, then the price have, you know, evens out at, at a much lower price. Sure, I can understand that. Now, who are your buyers? My buyers have varied from people who have saved up for two, three years to just buy one piece of mine have uh, uh, all the way up to the Sultan of Brunei. Really? He has six or eight of my swords. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. And I 
have a couple of people that are sultans in, uh, in Dubai and, and elsewhere in the Middle East that have paid a lot of money for, for big swords. The Sultan of Brunei bought my, uh, my uh, Excalibur sword, which is oh. certainly not Japanese, but uh-huh. it was uh, highly embellished with gemstones on it, and it was stuck in a rock. <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, I, had a, I had a Corvette seat worm, uh, worm drive out of a Corvette seat inside. And you, you press the button, hit under the floor, uh, it releases the blade. Is when you put right? it back in, it locks it in. Oh, my God, that's amazing. So it was kind of fun. And, and uh, uh, he allowed me, to, he, he insisted on that being uh, something that had to be on the sword. Uh, I just had it so it just slid in and out. And uh, he wanted it to be able to lock in. So uh, he paid the extra 2500 that it cost me to have some Hollywood stunt people uh, build the rock on the outside and, and this, uh, this mechanism. Isn't so that, that was uh, kind of a fun thing. Oh, that's amazing. Um, do you sign your, your blades under the handle like, like uh, say, the Japanese did? No. One of the things that I make a... I, I feel very peculiar about this. There are people who have seen my swords one time or another and have actually thought that they were originals. Wow. Now, that was somebody who doesn't really know hard how to look at a blade, but uh, have thought they were originals. And I didn't like that because I want them to know that they're American or came from America and that we're, they were done by an artist. Mm-hmm. So I signed them out on the, uh, if you held the blade in your hand and held it out, I signed it on the inside, which is uh, the panel that, that uh, uh, they would see it from. And I signed it with my name signed in Japanese. Oh, wow. wow. So it's a Japanese name, and it looks good on a sword. However, it's signed out on the blade, not on the tank. I see. Now, I'm going to have your website linked beside this podcast but I did want to ask you, um, for the people that are listening, what are the different types of pieces that you make? I make pretty much everything that a samurai would have used. Uh, some of the pieces are very esoteric, and so I've only built maybe two or three of them. Uh, others are extremely common, and I build them the most because they're the the, the piece that people want the most. Generally, I make uh, what would be called a war tonto. Uh, And also, I make something that we refer to as Bauhaus. They were a a late period, uh, Bauhaus, by the way, has obviously has no uh, equivalent in Japanese, but uh, they were a a very plain style. And they came out in the late 1700s, early 1800s, finally before swords weren't even used anymore. And they were carried in their sire, their waistband, and they were smooth pretty much all around. They uh, would have a small guard, uh, a lot of engraving on the on the uh, the metalwork. But it would be uh, it, w- it would not be a wrapped handle. It would not have a, a thick guard. It would not have a uh, be that 12 inches long that the uh, that the tantas generally are. Now the war tanto is is 11.9 inches long. Uh, and it's much, much beefier. It's probably a, a half a pound heavier. And it's for piercing armor. Uh, it's for um, if you have to get to a close combat situation. It's the equivalent of the big, big heavy Bowie. And it was used that way. And, uh, but later on, as, uh, as you would go into a man's house, 
You're not allowed by by law in Japan to wear a sword in a man's house. Well, the sword that they talk about is the long sword. And because it puts you in too close a range to you, whoever you might be swinging it at. So they'll allow you a wakazashi all the way up until the mid-1800s, early 1800s. And then they allowed you to just have a, a, a this Bowie-looking knife that I was referring to. So they slowly but surely uh, had different knives for each of those usages. I see. Mm-hmm. And where do you... Uh, do you sell just online? Uh, I sell stuff online. Probably half of what I sell online is is uh, shows, and the other half is online. And I go to a couple of exclusive uh, dealers, and I, I watch how things have moved around. If they aren't selling, uh, I'll, I'll move stuff over to another uh, place online that is selling. Sure. And the people that uh, I sell online with are obligated to me to sell it on the, the retail price of the blade, not to up the, the cost of it, because I, I give them a, a 15% break. Uh, if, if they're a good seller, I give them a 15% break. And they, that's where they make their money. They don't make it by um, tacking on another 15%, 20%. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There, is there a type of sword that you are considering uh, tackling that you've never tried before? Not really. I pretty well tackled <laughs> every one of them. Ah, really? Even ninja swords, which didn't exist. You know, <laughs> so uh, uh, I've, I've, I've done the, the long pole arms, which were used by the, the guys to cut down horses when they first came through in, in the horse years from you know, from the late 1400s on, uh, and I've tried the uh, uh, Naginata, or Nagimaki, which is a, a sword with an ultra-long handle that's used for crowd control and close, close combat with troops, and I've made uh, children's, uh, I've made little boys' uh, uh, katanas that look just like the real ones, but are scaled down like 20%. Mm-hmm. I've made all of those. Wow. Wow, interesting. How about, have you ever attempted to make a blade the way it was originally made by the Japanese? I've wanted to, and I never have. Mm -hmm. I have forged out blades that have already been... I, like I, I, one of the the bars of steel that I can buy is made by a, a, a guy who is now he's now retired, but for many years uh, he made a steel for especially for me that was a high carbon layered steel about 1,200 layers. But he wow. did it by something that's called a roller. He would take the layers of steel instead of hammering them together. He would roll them on a press. It's got hmm. it's a press with huge motorized rollers that squeeze the steel together mm-hmm. and shoot it across the room and start fires and everything like that. But that's that was how he <laughs> made it. And he was able to, and he folded it probably three or four times until he exponentially got up to 1,200 layers. And then he would send that to me, and that would have what is called undisturbed layeration. The layers have not been hammered and distorted at all. So mm. you don't see that wood grain feature that is on a, a Japanese bl- uh, blade. You see it very straight. And I will take one of those blades, and I will forge down the front tip, and I'll forge the edge, which opens up that, that grain structure and makes it look like it's wood grain again. Uh-huh. It gives it some of that Japanese look 
not as quite, I mean, somebody who's an expert at being able to tell what's what would know right away. And of course, it's, it's polished with my American style, but it's a much prettier blade. Uh, but it adds, it adds $600, $800, depending on length and everything, to the blade. Because mm-hmm. i got to pay the, the guy I had to do it. Mm-hmm. So it, it will go up more, but it won't be as much as, as getting a, a Japanese-style, forging a Japanese-style blade. Right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I worked with metal a little bit uh, many years ago, and I know from experience that polishing can be uh, take a, a lot of time and a lot of work. Do you spend a lot of time on the polishing? Well, the polishing I do is completely by hand. Wow. Uh, I don't use a machine at all on it. Uh, well, that's not exactly true. I start by after the blade comes out of the oven and has been heat treated and also the temper line has been put on it, which is what the heat treating does. Then I take that blade, which is very rough, it's still a sixteenth of an inch thick on the edge and it's got, uh, this handle hasn't been tapered. I take that blade and I will rough grind it with a 50 or an 80 grit sandpaper on a, on a belt grinder, a, a flat faced belt grinder. Mm-hmm. And that gives me basically the raw shape of my blade, which would be done with the first, what's called the first stone polish. On a, for a Japanese smith, that he would take what comes from out of the oven and would start making the sides absolutely straight, making the back absolutely straight, taking any kick, kicks out of the blade, you know, doing any of the adjustments to the actual shape of it that was left by the smith. Uh, that's what the polisher does. Then he proceeds to go through 27 more stones and, until he comes out with a stone called an Uchikomori, which is, is so fine that it's probably uh, oh, 8,000 grit. And it, it will highly, uh, it will frost just the area that you've done your, your hard tip on, the hard edge, the temper line. And that, that's all really very detailed, uh, explicit kind of polishing. What I do is I use sandpaper in each one of those grades, wet and dry. Mm-hmm. And I take it all the way up to 2,500 grits uh, wow. with that. And it gives me a pretty nice polish. It's, it's not as elegant as a Japanese polish, but it's pretty nice. And mine takes so uh, ten to twelve hours on a on a wow. long blade versus you know forty or fifty hours for a Japanese polisher. Wow, Isn't so that it's a lot less time. What what I'm trying to do it is exactly the same thing Bob Eggness is trying to do. Come out with a really 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 nice Japanese sword that looks and feels like a Japanese sword, but isn't. Mm-hmm. And we had to come up with a metal. Uh, you know I. I, I put a, there's a collar that's right at the end of the blade, uh, and I make that, uh, that's made by hand on Japanese swords with bending copper, heating it, bending it over until you, you bend it 25, 30 times and hammered it out all day long. It takes about eight hours. Wow. Uh, what I do is I, I hand cast that. I pour wax around it, I cast a block of wax, and I go over to grinder and grind it right down to a perfect fit. Mm-hmm. So it takes me time on machinery and by hand, and hand polishing of it, it takes me 35, 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the casting evolves. I do, I'll do five or six at the same time, and along with some Manuki or some other parts of the sword. I'll cast them all at one time. And then uh, when I go to make that blade, I'll just slip it over and start hammering it to fit perfectly.
Uh-huh. Now, this is all very interesting. Have you written anything, any articles or books? Well, there's actually, I have a, uh, a, a beautiful uh, coffee table, $50 coffee table book that I came out with uh, about two years ago. It was published by one of my collectors, and it has probably 100, 125 swords in it. And then I've written quite a few articles for Blade Magazine and, and uh, other magazines at various times, like for how to tie a handle and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I've been and I've been published in Europe. They they really love my stuff over there. So mm. uh, I've been published in in Russia. Uh, I've been published in France. I've been published in Italy uh, and in the Netherlands and in Germany. Wow. So uh, and Sweden. <laughs> they published me in Sweden too. Uh huh. Uh huh. Can you give out your website? My website is slobodianswords.com. Okay, it's going to be on our podcast, but this is for someone who's listening through another website or something. So, sure. Yeah. Slobodian Swords, the swords is plural with the S. Okay. Uh, dot com. And uh, if they, if anybody Googles, I'm getting ready to do a new website. So there is a slobodianswords.com slap backslash and then something else on it. And, that's that's just the first page of the new website, okay. and they'll never get anywhere on it. <laughs> I've had a couple of people, who, you know, written me and said your first page is beautiful, but it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work because it hasn't been finished yet. So just go to slobodianswords.com, and that's where the whole website is. Yes, I just went through that whole thing. I had to change my domain name and uh, website because of the search engine capabilities. So the whole thing is completely changed now, and I know what that's like. It's, it's quite yeah. a grueling process. This, my, uh, my, my page is, uh, my, my uh, website is probably seven years old now, and uh, the stuff that's on there for sale that was sold five years ago, and, <laughs> and the pricing on it, even though I put approximate to allow for some shift, it's much more expensive now, so it really is a. Uh, it really needs to be redone. Yeah. Well, this has been great. It's been very informative, and you're a fine gentleman. Very. Uh, it was a very fun one to do. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Very good. Well, okay, thank you very care. much. And this is Martin Willis with Scott Slobodian signing off. website antiqueauctionforum.com please stop by the forum message board click on the community tab at the top of the menu bar and you can join in on a topic post your own website links and do a lot more thanks so much for listening and we hope you enjoyed today's show